His mom called him cheeky, and his mates called him a comedy genius. Paul Lavelle had a huge circle of great friends who were very social together until Sarah Lewis entered his life. Before they realized it, his friends hadn't seen him in a year. And when they did, Paul was dead. This podcast contains adult themes, language, and violence. It is not suited to all audiences and may be triggering to some. In many cases, the names and details within these episodes have been changed to protect privacy. Opinions expressed by guests of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the podcast or its producers. Welcome to Isolated, a podcast about male victims of domestic abuse and control, as well as those suffering as a result of parent alienation syndrome. We are not therapists or experts in this field, but seek to bring these issues to light and provide awareness of early warning signs of abusive behavior and resources for help. Welcome, ISOs. I am Navi Carpenter. And I'm Chilla. And today we have for you a story of Paul Lavelle. Paul, age 50, and Sarah Lewis, age 46 of Ireland, met on a dating website, Plenty of Fish. An article in the Liverpool Echo describes Paul as an avid soccer fan who followed Everton around Europe with his mates. Home games, away games, they all went together, and they also met every week at a neighborhood pub. He was a gentle jokester, always making people laugh and incapable of killing a fly. His mate, Paul Gladwell, said, quote, Paul was a comedy genius who would sit in the middle of 40 lads in Benendorm and have everyone in hysterics. He was comedy gold and a very good mate who was always there for you if you needed it. In British terms, they called him cheeky, irreverent in an endearing or amusing way. But after meeting Sarah, all that came to a halt, and Gladwell only saw Paul two times after that, never meeting Sarah. Paul stopped seeing his family as well. Gladwell said on the rare occasion he did see Paul that he was very quiet, which was not his normal demeanor at all. Paul did tell Gladwell that Sarah was a crank, a bitch in our vernacular, but Gladwell didn't really inquire further. He's kicking himself for it now, but hindsight is twenty twenty. His mates would text Paul, who always used to text back, but then they stopped receiving replies. You know, Navi, if you stopped responding to my texts or calls, I'd be pissed. I know. <laughs> my first thought would not be that you were being isolated in an abusive relationship. Well, at least it wouldn't have been before we started doing this podcast. <laughs> right? Now we think differently. Yeah. Instead, I don't know. I'd think you were brushing me off or not making me a priority or just maybe you didn't want to be besties anymore. Uh- And I would definitely be hurt and mad. I know. I know. I I would feel the same. We need to get over, though, our damn pride and assumptions of someone in our life who was previously very communicative stops communicating. During their stormy 12-month relationship, police would be called to the scene of an argument several times, including an incident where they found Paul wearing a t-shirt covered in blood. Sarah had hit him in the nose in front of one of his children. Paul's brother, Andrew, saw him at the gym one day with a black and blue leg with puncture marks. Andrew asked him what the hell had happened, but Paul said he heard himself at work going downstairs. Turns out Sarah had stabbed him twice with a screwdriver. How the hell could you hurt yourself like that walking downstairs unless you like somehow fell head over heels? I thought the same thing. It makes absolutely no sense in my mind, but Andrew didn't question it. I guess you don't just automatically 
you know, your mind just doesn't go, go there. Doesn't go there. But, yeah. And then Worst I, case scenario type thing. Yeah. And then I think being punctured in the leg with a screwdriver, they're not even sharp. Yeah, the the force that you would have to use to... Ugh. Anyway, another time Paul came to work with a wound to the head. And when they asked how he hurt his head, he said he forgot to put his hard hat on. It's all of those little things that you look back on and you say, damn, why didn't I see it? Because we're not looking. And that's, you know, one of the many reasons for this podcast. Open your eyes, consider alternatives, ask, press, be annoying, but look out for your friends and your family. Does their mouth say one thing, but maybe their body language doesn't add up? True. Very true. In 2017, about a year after meeting Sarah, she embarked on an angry, violent tirade, threw a plate and broke it. She picked up one of the sharp shards of the pottery and jabbed Paul in the face, badly cutting his left nostril. Sarah then took photos of Paul's face. What, is she going to Facebook it? What a weirdo. Before leaving to spend the night at her sister's house, a sister whom she had not spoken to in almost a year and a half. I never used to think that a broken piece of pottery was that sharp it wasn't like glass or a knife to me you know or dangerous but then like an obvious uh, weapon weapon yeah. yeah but then there was this incident that still horrifies me to this day somehow the soap dish um in our shower broke off i don't remember if i stood on it to clean something or if the shower rod fell and hit it i don't remember how it happened but it it broke off and it hadn't been repaired yet and my youngest son went in to take a shower and somehow he slipped of course right when there was no <laughs> Right when that thing was broken and he came down on his arm and that gash was so deep. There was blood everywhere. I was oh, freaked no. out. I had to take him to the emergency room. He had to have a bunch of stitches, which I couldn't watch, by the way. I just held his hand and I went around the corner of the door while they sewed him up. But I, it is super sharp. It's a big gash. Oh, yeah, that's that's really scary. <laughs> and wounds to the head bleed, you know, even more heavily. Um, there's so many blood vessels in order to carry the large amount of oxygen to the brain that it requires. So I'm sure he needed stitches as well. I am sure he did. But I guess Paul didn't think the wound was as serious as, as it was, or perhaps he just held the compress to it and laid down on the bed and then fell asleep. His friend said that he was such a nice guy. He wouldn't have wanted to cause trouble for Sarah if it wasn't a big deal. At some point, he woke to find himself lying in a pool of blood. Crime scene photos show a double bed just soaked in it. It appears Paul tried to call 999 at this point, but may have been too woozy and disoriented from the blood loss. An article in the Daily Record by David Raven and Phil Cardi stated that instead the call went to the voicemail of a friend. On the message, Paul said he needed to get to a hospital and the quote, this place is a bloodbath. It's a fucking bloodbath, end quote. He also left nine voicemails on Sarah's phone, which she ignored and later deleted, so no one will ever know what he had said. Paul bled from the wound all night, and in the morning, Sarah returned to the flat to find Paul dead in the bathroom. Oh, my gosh. When Paul Gladwell, one of Paul Lavelle's best friends, and because this is so confusing, I'm just going to start calling him Gladwell. When Gladwell got the call that his friend might be dead, he drove to his house and found Sarah sitting in the back of a patrol car laughing her head off on her cell phone. If that isn't the epitome of a psychopath. Oh my gosh, this woman. Sarah was arrested and accused of murder. However, she pleaded to the lesser charge of manslaughter on day two of her court appearance, presumably to avoid a lengthy trial. In court, Sarah first said Paul did it to himself. He cut his nostril open? Right. For no reason? With a sharp edge of a plate. Yeah. 
He jabbed himself in the face, whatever. Uh, but the judge wasn't having any of that. So she changed her testimony. She did do it, but couldn't remember it. And then she changed again, saying, well, I did do it, but he made me do it. And then finally, she pleaded guilty of manslaughter. With the guilty plea, there really wasn't a trial. So no witnesses were called or evidence presented. We'll never really know the full extent of the horrors that uh, Paul endured. In a Daily Mail article, Tanya Griffiths, one of the prosecutors, said, quote, We submit this was a deliberate and premeditated attack, not planned, but premeditated, in that she threw the plate and shattered it before picking up the shard, end quote. So because she had to bend down and pick up that sharp object, she predetermined to hurt him? I guess so. I mean, what would they have called it if she just threw the plate at him and, you know, sliced his face that way? I'm not very knowledgeable about all the different types of criminal charges. I should get more in tune with them, but I've not had much experience. Well, there's a lot of details that go into it. I know, I know. But anyway, Sarah was jailed for seven and a half years at Liverpool Crown Court in January of 2018. In a Daily Mail article by Amanda Cashmore, Paul's son, Jake, who was 20 at the time, pulled on heartstrings when reading a victim statement to the court. Will you read it, Sheila? He said, quote, Losing my dad has caused me more pain and heartbreak than I can put into words. I struggle to deal with the fact I will never see, hear, or feel my dad again at a time when I need him most. We have not only lost a dad, we have lost a friend and a role model. Throughout my life, I will always have a part of me missing, end quote. It's so final and so senseless and sad. Sarah's defense attorney also read a statement. Go ahead and read that as well, Chilla. Dorian Lavelle Pink said, quote, through me, Sarah Lewis wants Paul Lavelle's family and friends to know she is deeply, deeply sorry for what she did to him and how her actions have affected his family and so many others. She too will have to live with what she has done for the rest of her life, end quote. Wah, like that's sufficient. She will still have a life. Eh, yeah, she has to, you mean she gets to live with it. He died with it. Detective Inspector Allison Woods of the Myersfield Police issued a statement regarding domestic abuse that read, quote, I would like to thank Paul's family for their bravery and courage during this ordeal and assure anyone who is involved in domestic abuse to come forward and speak to people who can help the situation before it escalates. Domestic abuse can happen to anyone at any time, regardless of gender, age, and sexuality. It is important for people to recognize when it is happening to them and that confidential support and advice is available to those who need it, end quote. Bob Blackwell, along with Paul Gladwell and other friends started the Paul Lavelle Foundation to support the family. Bob did an interview on Talk Hub July 12, 2020, about his friend. His accent is so heavy, it's a bit hard to understand, but I believe he said that when they started the charity, it was initially to support Paul's family and also to get people out and running and moving and doing healthy things in life because they felt like, I don't know, if you're doing those kind of things outside the home together as a family, that you'll have a better emotional family life inside the walls of your home, something like that. Yeah, you can you can hope. I can he, work. he said that like Paul, too many men are opting out of telling anyone about their abuse and they are wondering why. He said, quote, the silence is fueling the violence and it has to stop, end quote. That's really a good way to put it. It really is. Paul said that even throughout the COVID lockdown, when abuse was more prevalent and being highlighted in the news, the word male was getting erased. He said it's not a gender issue. And he says that 18% of men living on the streets in Ireland are there because of partner abuse. 
Pop stated that most men that leave abusive relationships lose everything, their homes, their children, and thus things have to work differently. While sitting down with Paul on a rare day when they saw each other, Paul told Bob his life was pretty much, you know, my whole life is crap right now. Bob said he didn't pry. He didn't ask questions. And looking back, he's kicking himself, thinking that Paul wanted him to press to pull it out of him. One gentleman who came into their shelter was just sobbing, sharing his story. He said he went to the police and they didn't believe him. And his wife flipped everything around, saying that he was the abuser. We've heard that plot twist so many times now. It's not even a twist anymore. It's the inevitable conclusion. Right. But that storyline did have a plot twist. This gentleman's young daughter told police she kept a record of everything her mom did. She handed her diary over to police and they reversed their erroneous assumption that the male was the perpetrator. So again, ISOs, document, document, document. Even if it's abuse against someone else, you could be the proof they need. Totally. Bob also thinks that a lot of men and women think that if it isn't a punch, then it's not abuse. So they don't come forward at all, which couldn't be farther from the truth. No, it has to be a hit. <laughs> Remember Amber Heard telling Johnny Depp in episode eight and nine, I didn't punch you, babe. I hit you. I did not punch you. Semantics, semantics. Bob said that the police searched Paul's home and didn't find his phone, didn't get phone records or anything like that since the trial wasn't happening. But Bob found the phone after the police had gone and true to alienation and isolation style, Sarah had either erased or made Paul erase all of his close friend's contact information. Wait, didn't you say he called a friend the night he died? Yeah, but he must have either had that number memorized or went to the incoming call log and found the number or pressed redial or something. I don't know. Bob cautions men to look out for their mates. Take note if they drop off the radar. Check on them. And he says, you are not less of a man if you speak up about the abuse. You have to tell someone what's happening. And those on the receiving end of that disclosure need to be accepting and supportive, not mocking and dismissive. So Chella, let's review the signs of isolation for our ISOs to look out for in their friends. Right. So if your friend or family member has always been communicative or talk, text or email and gradually or suddenly stops without saying why, that's a warning sign. If your friend or family member always used to attend a weekly meeting, outing, or function but no longer shows, that's a sign. If your friend or family member comes to occasional family events but never brings his domestic partner, that's a sign. If you contact your friend or family member and they never respond, that's a sign. If your friend or family member starts wearing long sleeves all the time, long pants, etc., even if it's the midst of summer, that can be a sign. If they keep showing up with injuries and passing them off as accidents, especially if you find them hard to believe, that is a sign. Yes. Bear all of that in mind. And then approach your friend or family member with your concerns. Better safe than sorry. Paul's loved ones keep asking a question they will never have an answer to. Why didn't you talk to me? Why didn't you come to us? As a friend, you have a duty to keep your eyes open and see beyond words or lack of words. Gladwell, who is now the co-chairman of the Paul Lavelle Foundation, said men are almost three times less likely to tell anyone about abuse as women. Gladwell says he saw Paul a lot more when he was with his previous girlfriend, who was a wonderful woman and mother to his children. The first time Gladwell saw Sarah was in court. He said, quote, she came bouncing in, nonchalant and aggressive looking, staring daggers at everyone. And I thought, oh, my God, how did you wind up with her? End quote. 
Gladwell says people still don't like to talk about what happened to Paul because he would be embarrassed if anyone knew he had been hit by a woman. But Gladwell says, quote, that's the thing, isn't it? He would be, but he's not here to be embarrassed now. He was obviously embarrassed about it when he was alive, and therein lies your problem. The board of the Paul Lavelle Foundation feel that pride and machismo plays a large part in why men don't speak up. The town where Paul lived was a strong, working-class town. Guys that grew up there tended to just stay and work alongside their childhood mates. It wasn't the sort of climate where men ever talked about their feelings. When the murder occurred, it was just passed about as if it were a drunken brawl between he and his wife. We need to start telling the truth. Embarrassment be damned. Wouldn't you rather be embarrassed than dead? Well, I would, but perhaps male victims don't even consider death might be the end result of a domestic partner who is a crank. Read what Paul's mom said. His mom, Barbara, in the Daily Record uh, said, quote, Don't suffer in silence. Don't bottle it up. Drop the macho act because I can assure you you're not the only guy in that position, end quote. Andrew, Paul's younger brother, said the number of men contacting them at the foundation has been, quote, enlightening and shocking. There's a mixture of embarrassment and shame about being beaten up by a girl. We need to get over that, end quote. Yeah. Gladwell said in a Metro UK article, it is a silent issue. There is a terrible male silence, one which Paul sadly chose to take. He had a large network of friends, but no one knew his issues until it was too late. It's a common trait that needs to change, end quote. Gladwell also said that the group of mates they all hung out with were a loud, boisterous crowd and ribbed each other unceasingly, always joking. It was always meant in fun and no one took the jibe seriously, yet he fears that the dynamics of such male relationships hinders truth and that Paul may have felt his mates would laugh at him for not being able to handle this woman. An article by Kelly Gonzalez in mindbodygreen.com talks about a case study of 4,000 men in the UK, Canada, and USA in which they were surveying regarding their perceptions of masculinity and emotions. Let's talk about some of those findings, Chella. I'm just going to read it so I get all the stats right. No, they're hard to remember. <laughs> the article states, quote, what they found is most men know expressing their emotions is important, but they still feel like they're punished for doing it. A whole 77% of men say they see talking as an effective way to deal with their problems, and 76% know it's good for their mental health. Even so, 58% of men feel like they are expected to be, quote, emotionally strong and to show no weakness, end quote. And 38% of men have avoided talking to others about their feelings to avoid appearing unmanly. Over half, 53% of American men between ages 18 and 34 say they feel pressure to be manly, and 22% of those in this age group say they're always or frequently mocked for, quote, not being manly enough. These pressures come with real consequences. 39% of men say they, at times, change their behavior to appear more masculine, with 10% saying they do it, quote, frequently. More than a quarter of men, 29%, say they've purposefully not shown emotion or held back from crying in front of others in order to preserve their masculinity. And 22% say they're unlikely to talk to someone even if they're dealing with a problem they're having trouble coping with. One in five men, 21%, don't have anyone they can talk to about their problems or say they don't like talking about their problems. It sounds like society has done males a great disservice in perpetuating the stereotype that they always have to be strong. One of the things I love so much about my hubby is he's so vulnerable. It doesn't 
make him any weaker or less manly to me. It means I can know him and therefore accept all of him. And it makes him feel seen and accepted. Clinical psychologist Christina Hallett, PhD, wrote, quote, Every time we are frustrated, disgusted, or uncomfortable with a man appearing weak or sensitive, we contribute to the problem. We need to champion vulnerability. That means allowing men to have feelings, to cry, and screw up without calling into question their manliness. It's time to redefine manhood to celebrate emotionality and softness, and it's up to all of us to uphold this new ideal. And I'm going to flub up the pronunciation of this name, but Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is an award-winning author who said, quote, by far the worst thing we do to males by making them feel they have to be hard is that we leave them with very fragile egos, end quote. The term toxic masculinity gets tossed about quite a bit these days, equating to a set of behaviors that are defined in part by tough dude behavior, appearing hard with a stiff upper lip and burying emotions and distress. It intimates that anything other than that makes a man appear weak or feminine. Some men have a better emotional toolbox, allowing them to share with friends and family that something is going terribly wrong in their life, while others just keep it hidden. Wade Davis, former NFL player, speaks at big corporations like Netflix and Google. Read what he said regarding his approach to a solution. In a New York Times article by Maya Salam, she said Davis feels there are no better messengers to help men confront these issues than other men. Davis said, quote, I don't think it's the work of women. I think it's the work of men like myself who need to be talking to our brothers, fathers, our friends. It's individual men who are going to have to at some point decide how to define manhood and masculinity for himself, end quote. Yeah. So, you know, I suppose we apologize that we're women talking about this stuff. If it's more helpful to have men talking about it, but men aren't talking. And so we are doing what we can until we have, we'd love to have a third co-host on our podcast. That's a man. So if that's you, let us know. Yeah. Give us an email or something. And we would love to hear your stories, your insights, anything you have to share that could help others. So please email us as well. Um, We can share your information anonymously. And uh, we would love to do that so that we can all help each other. To that end, remember that Metanoia, our therapy group that we support through our Patreon page, is a place that is helping men get together with other men in group therapy sessions to help them realize they're abused and to develop a safety plan and find a way out. So if you can support us through that Patreon page, we can support other men who can't afford therapy otherwise. The Paul Lavelle Foundation aims to give men a safe place to discuss their abuse and get help. Also, part of the reason friends and family created the foundation was to get Paul's story out, since there was no testimony at trial and create awareness that this wasn't just a murder. It was an ongoing domestic abuse situation that only ended because Paul was dead. We will put a link to the foundation in our show notes. Please consider donating to their cause. We will also put links to all the supporting documents associated with this episode. As always, ISOs, we pray for your welfare and healing. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and survive. If you or someone you love is being abused by an intimate partner, we have resources listed on our website at isolatedpodcast.com. If you have an experience, expertise, or advice you'd like to share, please send an email to notalone at isolatedpodcast.com 
or visit our website. Your privacy, should you desire it, is a top priority for us. You can support the work of this podcast and help fund much-needed therapy for men who can't afford it by becoming a member through our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash isolated podcast, which also gets you perks and benefits unavailable to non-members. You can cancel at any time. Your five-star review on iTunes will also help promote the show and help listeners find the podcast. Thank you so much for your support.